0: Here. Well, good morning. Good to good to see each of you. Good to be with you this morning. You know, we we all have memories of our favorite childhood stories, and I'm sure that if we took the time and just went around the room, we could we could share just many of, of those stories that connect us to the memories the people, the places, the traditions that we cherish. Much of the truth and tradition that we hold as believers is also connected to story. And during Advent, we're pausing to remember the stories that surround the birth of Christ, that shape our faith and shape us as a community. Um, And there's, there's a risk, however, As as wonderful as this pausing is, uh, the risk is that we reduce the biblical stories to something akin to our favorite children's stories. Um, We pull them out, we enjoy them this time of the year, and then we pack them away again. And they kind of fall off the radar and we lose sight of the mystery and the miracle and so as we enter this Advent season and, and look at some of these stories, here are some of the questions that I am leaning into and invite you to join me in over these next two or three weeks. Can we read these familiar stories as though we were reading them for the first time? You know, pause and, and, and just, just invite the Spirit of God to Awaken your imagination and read them as though you were reading them for the first time. And can we experience the awe and the wonder that surrounded Jesus' birth? You know, uh, one of the, uh, my favorite books on teaching and preaching is, is got a wonderful title. It's called Finally Comes the Poet. And uh, the writer, uh, Walter Brueggemann, uh, describes teaching like this. To, uh, preaching uh, ought to be an event in transformed imagination. The conversation on which our very lives depend requires a poet and not a moralist. You see, in the end, church people are like other people, we're not changed by new rules. The deep places in our lives, the places of resistance and the places of embrace are not ultimately reached by instruction. The places of resistance and embrace are reached by stories, by images, by metaphors and phrases that line out the world differently apart from our fears and hurts and invite us into a story larger than our own. Well, last week, we looked at Isaiah's prophecies uh, around Jesus' birth, and I want to take a moment just to go back and recall that, for those of you who weren't with us, and and we all need little reminders, but here's here's what we discovered. Isaiah's words were whispers of the greatness of the gospel that we've too often reduced to the promise of a personal place in heaven. Um, Jesus' birth and death and resurrection, his, his life with the Father, now they all promise to restore people to right relationship with God. Yes and yes and yes. But they also promise to restore the earth with its government and judicial systems with this culture and the natural environment um, into a right relationship with God. And, and so often we've, we've taken this story and we've, re, we've reduced it to a story only about us. And, and what we found in, in Isaiah as Isaiah began to point uh, towards Jesus' birth, we found that Jesus is the Savior and King who will establish his reign on earth. And the gospel is much more glorious and grand and, and great than some have been led to believe. Um, and there's a part of us that we, we hear this this story with, with its scope and in all that God is going to do in restoring the earth in justice and justice and our instinctive response, maybe it's just too good to be true. And, and so we we stand on the edges of the Advent story. Even those of us who know the story. We stand on the edges of the story, and while we can enjoy the simplicity and the beauty of the story, we cannot bring ourselves to fully embrace the greatness of the story. And we guard ourselves against placing too much belief in what Isaiah described and and we're, we're, we're uh, afraid to hope, afraid to hope. Um, and so we settle into a reserved skepticism rather than an unreserved faith. And as I said last week, we find ourselves uh, living in a, in a strange paradox. Though, we're, though we long for the kingdom, we're sometimes ashamed of the gospel. And it's a curious place to be. And yet, the greatness and the wonder of this story awakens our imagination and our hope. And we're going to see that played out in the lives of three people over the next couple of weeks. And we're going to begin with Mary. If you have your Bibles, uh, turn to Luke chapter 1. If you don't have your Bibles, you'll see... The passage is on the screen, and we're going to talk through this story maybe in a fresh way. Um, Verse 26 is where I'm going to begin. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin, pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. And so Mary, a young girl at this time, probably in her teen years, um, is visited by the angel Gabriel. And as the story begins, it sounds like one of our favorite children's stories or fairy tales. I was thinking even this morning, it reads like, a, like Lucy hiding in the back of an old wardrobe... <laughs> accidentally walking into Narnia where she meets Tumnus the talking fawn at the lamppost. And it, it has the feel of, of, of a, something out of the Chronicles of Narnia and the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. And, and, and yet in this story, it occurred to a very real person in a real place, uh, in a real time, not a, not a make-believe world. And Mary was engaged uh, to Joseph, and they were poor, common people. Uh, the reality is you could not have any more unspectacular or unlikely people for such a visit. Uh, young kids, uh, their engagement likely arranged by their parents. And according to, to, to custom, a Jewish custom, a 12-month visit, Period of engagement was required. Um, and intended to prove the moral integrity of the couple entering marriage, although it seemed unnecessary for a couple so young. Um, but Gabriel spoke to Mary Greetings, you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. Uh, the, the most literal translation of that phrase would would read uh, would, would literally read greetings graced one. Greetings favored one. The Lord is with you. Uh, today we might say something like this. Mary, I, 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 I trust you're sitting down, um, but God has chosen you above all other women to be the recipient of his special favor or a gesture of grace. Mary, your life is about to change. And you see these wonderful moments when we, when we realize that we're not reading a fairy tale, that Mary is a person like you, like me, like our teenage sons and daughters. And as much as we desire and even invite God's favor in our life, who among us would not welcome God's grace? Who among us would not welcome God's favor Um, uh, appearing in our lives. But as much as we desire and invite God's favor on our lives, God showing up can be an unsettling experience. And there are times when God steps into our lives and it's unexpected. It's unplanned. We didn't see it coming. We were unaware of, of what God is doing. And at that moment, it's never a neutral or passive proposition. And in fact, the reality is it's disorienting and it's disruptive to us because everything about our lives might change and might hinge on how we respond at that moment to God showing up. And for Mary, Mary's life would pivot and change forever. Never be the same. The whole trajectory of the rest of her life would be placed on a different course because of this moment of God stepping in. Verse 29, Mary, Mary was greatly troubled at his words. That, that is just, whoa, what a massive understatement. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to to call him Jesus. He will be great. He will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. And if you were with us last week, we saw whispers of all of this language that begins to appear in, in all the story. And, and Gabriel assured Mary there was nothing to be afraid of. You've been chosen to give birth to a son, and his name is going to be Jesus, and he will be great, and he'll be called the Son of the Most High. He'll be given the throne of David. He will reign forever. And, and I have a suspicion that after he kind of ticked off that list, now she was really afraid. <laughs> and, and what landed was just the magnitude of what God was about to do and Mary, your son, your son, Mary, will enjoy an unusual place of honor and authority. Your son, Mary, will be the long-awaited hope of Israel, the Messiah. Some of you may recall that for centuries, the identity of this savior had been progressively revealed A paragraph of the promise was given to Abraham, revealing that the Savior would come from his family and would be a blessing to the entire world. Uh, A thousand years later, another portion of the promise revealed to, to David he would be a descendant of David, an heir to the king's throne. And prophet by prophet, paragraph by paragraph, the Savior's features grew more distinct as he was revealed a word at a time, a sentence at a time, an image at a time. Emmanuel, out of you, Bethlehem, will come a ruler, a bruised reed he will not break, a, dim, a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. And, and the story began to emerge that would capture the hearts of the Jewish people. And for generations, Mary's people waited. Fathers taught their families to watch for this Messiah. Mothers peered into the eyes of their newborn babies wondering whether their child might be the one. And then for 400 years, there was no mention. No mention of the Savior. No whispers. No prophetic messages. No divine visitations. No word at all. God went silent. Until Gabriel visited Mary. Mary, the waiting's over. What your, what your people have been longing for for generations is, is now going to happen. Uh, my son will now come and you will carry him. You know, when, when, we, when we talk about the rhythms and seasons of the church, like Advent. These are not empty rituals to us. Um, These rhythms, uh, they bring us home to the essential stories of our faith. They ground us in the essential practices that sustain our faith when everything else around us is changing and, and chaotic and, and all that's going on, these become the, the grounding realities to our lives and faith when the world around us is shaking. And Advent invites the longing for the arrival of Christ, something the, the people of, of Israel had known for generations But when we talk about longing for the arrival of Christ, especially on this side of Jesus' birth, we're not only longing for what we see in the biblical story, but we're longing for the arrival of Jesus now in the places where you and I long for, our, for, for Christ's presence and, and we need his presence in our stories and our personal lives and our addictions and our marriages and our careers and all the things that are a part of our lives and, and we're longing for Christ to, to just make his presence felt. We, we're looking for his presence in our stories and then Advent also invites us into our longing for Christ's second arrival. And so not unlike the people of the Old Testament, We too are called to wait. And we've been waiting for generations as well. And we're called to wait. And in this posture of an active waiting, we're alert, we're patient, we're full of anticipation, looking for the presence of Christ. But the pace and just the pressures of the Christmas season with its rushes and demands, offer us little encouragement or help with the waiting. And looking for the presence of Amazon, the next day delivery doesn't help, right? (laughs) Um, And I can't speak for, well, I can speak for you. Um, When we're asked to wait, we grow impatient. Frustrated, sometimes angry. Because waiting, waiting reminds us of something. Waiting reminds us of, of something that none of us really like to come to grips with, and that is we're not in control. We're completely dependent upon God's provision, God's arrival, and, and God is gonna move into our lives in his time and in his way, not at our whims. And so the season of Advent is an opportunity for you and me to practice waiting, active waiting, envisioned waiting, watching for Christ's arrival in our story, fully aware of the areas in our lives where our agendas and our anxieties are not helping a whole lot. It's not what is needed. And he says, just wait. Let's go on with the story. Well, Mary asks the obvious question, How will will this be? I'm a virgin. And then one of the most mysterious verses in all the scripture, the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. The Holy One will be born, the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And then even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age for no word from God will ever fail. With a perception far beyond her young age, I I love what takes place as this story unfolds. Mary recognized the fulfillment of Gabriel's promise, not in the distant future, but in the present. It's, It's interesting to me when when, when Mary says, how will this be, her question is not about the promise. It's about the process. <laughs> uh, okay, I get this is going to happen, but how? How is this going to happen? And Gabriel's answer is stunning in its simplicity. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and God's power will overshadow you. Mary, God is going to do what is humanly impossible in your body. Equally miraculous, equally mysterious, your son will have no natural father. The conception will be the result of the creative presence and power of God at work within your body. And to you and I, just kind of products of the enlightenment with our Uh, sometimes just addictive need to understand, Gabriel's answer is never explained. Um, It's never spelled out with any more detail. There's no Old Testament passages that are cited as evidence to satisfy our curiosity or to convince future generations of skeptics. Gabriel and by extension, God, were quite peaceful with the mystery of it all. A stunning revelation, and that's all we're going to tell you. And even though Mary never requested it, Gabriel offered her a personal sign to assure her that his words could be trusted. Her cousin Elizabeth, childless and too old to have children, was now six months pregnant And then Gabriel spoke words that invited a response of trust. And Gabriel says, Mary, no word from God will ever fail. You know, I I don't know what you're facing in your life right now. Linger with that for a moment. No word from God will ever fail. And you 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 just bring up all the collection of God's promises and assurances and and to you and me, the Spirit would say, No words from God will ever fail. And it, it invites a, a profound level of trust. And Mary was asked to make room for miracle and mystery. Neither she had words for. Neither would she ever be able to explain. She was asked to make room, and and we see her response in verse 38, and I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. And then the angel left her. In that moment, there was little thought or worry given to the difficult reality that this miracle pregnancy uh, would, would create for her and Joseph. At best, she would be shamed. At worst, she might be stoned. But in that moment, whatever the cost, whatever the consequence, there was a simple yes. And she embraced the mystery and the miracle with a stunning courage. And when I I think of Mary and Mary's story, uh, what I see is the innocence and the simplicity of childlike trust that has not yet been corrupted by the cynicism and the the callousness of adulthood. A number of you in our audience young people, teens, critical decisions are being made in your life today. (laughs) And you model something to us as adults. You you model to us a, a simplicity of a childlike trust. And don't miss that. Because your life hasn't, as much as you want to grow up and you want to become an adult, you you live in a wonderful place at 10, 11, and 12 with this simplicity of a childlike trust. That was Mary. One of my uh, favorite authors is Brennan Manning. And uh, in a a collection of writings called uh, Reflections for Ragamuffins, he wrote this about the Advent season, he said, the Christmas contemplative knows that hope is a gift, an undeserved gift of peace, but that it is also a call to decision, the decision to trust. Hope thrives on the difficult and challenges the conclusion that our only contribution to the world will be, in the words of T.S. Eliot, an asphalt driveway in front of our home and a thousand lost golf balls. Hope convinces us that clinging to a miserable sense of security in status quo, the possibility of growth in greatness is utterly defeated. Hope says "I, I no longer need to be dismayed over my personal dishonesty, my self-centeredness, or my feeble life of faith, that I no longer need to feel defeated, ashamed, insensitive, or superficial. Because the question is no longer, can I do it? Am I able? Can I overcome my moodiness, my laziness, My sensuality, my addictions, my grudges, my resentments. The only question is, is Jesus Christ able? Can my Savior, the Lord and King of my life, revive my drooping spirit and transform me during this Advent season as he transferred Mary, as he transformed Mary in the world through his birth in, in Bethlehem? See, that's the hope. Now, we read a story like this, and and one might wonder if uh, after a little time and and distance from the emotion of this dramatic encounter, uh, Mary's resolve might begin to fade or waver or weaken. You read on in Luke 1, and it didn't. It grew. And Mary's, you read Mary's thoughtful reflection, just listen, it. it's not going to appear on your screen. Mary, Mary wrote a, a number of days or maybe weeks later, My soul glorifies the Lord, my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. And from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Blessed. For the mighty one has done great things in me, before me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones. He has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things. He has sent away the wretch empty. And see, Now her words are taking a prophetic component. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. See, here's what I want you to understand about Mary. As young as she is, Mary understood with wide-eyed clarity the implications of all that was taking place in her story. She saw that what was going on was the fulfillment of generations waiting. She understood prophetically what it meant for the future. She wide-eyed clarity, all the implications of what was taking place in her story. She had grasped the meaning of the story she was being asked to live. Fully grasped it. And her life took on meaning and, and awakened in Mary a life long devotion. It's a great story. And what I would like to do is just lead you in a time of prayer. Because this story, as it lingers, here's here's what I find for so many of us. We don't live with a wide-eyed clarity about the meaning of our lives. It's fuzzy to us. It's ambivalent. It's confusing. And we're invited into something large. Each of you, each of us, regardless of your age and your season of life, you're invited into something that infuses your life with, with a meaning that elicits lifelong devotion. And with that, I want to leave us in a time of prayer. Because how else do we respond except just to lay ourselves before God? So join me. Father, the power of stories is that they are telling us that our life somehow adds up, makes sense. That life itself, my life, is a story. And this grips us, fascinates us. And then something, something begins to resonate. If there is meaning in Mary's life, maybe there is meaning in my life. And if this is true, it makes us listen to you. You're the storyteller. And now we listen with a greater intensity, because in this way, all your stories are about us. Because it's always possible that you are inviting us into the very meaning of our lives. And so Father, may we not simply pull this story out, dust it off, enjoy the beauty of it. Father, may it disorient us, may it unsettle us, may it disrupt us. And while you are not asking us to carry your son, you're calling us into a life of courageous trust. And Father, may this Advent season for each of us be a defining time where everything changes. Or a defining time in which a life of of already committed devotion is infused with more vision and more passion and more imagination and more courage. Because each of our stories play a meaningful part in this greater story that you're doing in bringing your kingdom to bear. And so Father, thank you this morning for this story and thank you this morning for our story. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, the the rhythms of the church here as I was talking about with Advent are helpful for our spiritual journey. And they bring us home to the essential practices and stories of our faith, and they invite the essential practices of our faith. And one of those essential stories is the Lord's table, or the essential practices is the Lord's table. And we, we come together once a month here around Grace as a family to Remember. And for us, it's not an empty ritual. It's coming home. It's coming home once a month. It's coming home to what is most essential about us, what is most true that Jesus is our Savior, He's our Lord, He's our King. He's died to secure the forgiveness of our sins in a relationship. He's drawn us into something and, and, and we, we gather around this moment just to, to be sustained for another month. But we're also doing something else. Do you remember what Jesus said when we talked about the Lord's table? I want you to do this until, until he, until he returns. This is, Part of our act of waiting. That we declare that we are actively waiting on this side of Jesus' first arrival, that we are awaiting Jesus' second arrival. And so, as you come to the table for this morning, and we're going to ask you to use the like these three aisles right here and then circle back around because of just tr- crowd control. Come up, but have that clearly aware in, in, your, in your thinking. That this is just a a grounding, anchoring time of us remembering what Jesus' first arrival and all that it means to us, and our longing for his second arrival. Um, As we come up this morning, we confirm something here. I believe we have little white cups in the bread cups for those of you who are gluten free. And you can't, or you have our gluten, you've got a little, a little gluten-free wafer in there, and they're on your tray. So if I can have the people who are going to serve, come on up with me, and I'm going to have a word of prayer, and uh, we'll begin We'll begin serving. Father, we uh, are grateful. We're grateful for the life we share as a family. And during this Advent season, as we're called into this Reminder of active waiting. We are so grateful that we are on the other side, that we, we celebrate the, the life and the death and the resurrection, the ascension, the ongoing life of Jesus and the promise of, of his kingdom. And Father, we await your second coming. And so, Father, we come to the table as a, an active display of our faith this morning. Not passive, very alive, very active. And we do this in Jesus' name.
1: Morning is the first Sunday of the month, and for our second hour, we'll be having a lunch on the lawn out in the back here. We invite you all to stay, come make Legos and wrap some um, books for our friends at the mobile food pantry. In addition, make sure you stop in the back pick up um, goodie bags or um, gift cards for our Cleveland friends. One more thing, our Grace um, children's leaders have set up a little display here that has an appreciation bag for those of you that serve in our children's ministry, and they would love to talk with you and hear about um, any feedback you have from this year teaching together. And now as, as we go um, to the second hour enjoying fellowship together, let me lead us in prayer um, for lunch and closing prayer. Father, as we go anticipating your return, Lord, we long for that day that you come and take us home. May we go now um, and faithfully serve you until, while we wait Um, May we serve and love and give and I just pray now your blessing upon this time of fellowship and the food as we serve together in Christ's name. Amen. You're dismissed.